Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jay Lee. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Los Angeles. Jay, thanks for being on the episode today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just give us a brief rundown of your personal history, your training, and your current practice. So, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I ended up going to dental school at UCLA, and I finished there in 2011. And I went to the University of Texas Southwestern, or basically Parkland Hospital, as it's more commonly known for residency. Six years after that, 2017 is when I finished. And then I've been at my same practice ever since in Los Angeles. Excellent. So you are also a UCLA Dental School alumni as I am. Oh, wonderful. What year were you? Uh, graduated in 2009. Okay. Yes. Did you enjoy your time there or what did you think of it? I thought it was actually pretty challenging academically, but you know we were in a great part of town and so good way to spend four years. Yes, for sure. That's awesome. So you're in a, a group practice or what kind of setup is it? I'm in a group practice. I was the fourth surgeon to join the practice when I joined in 2017. Uh, We now have five surgeons in our practice, but yeah, we're a group private practice. We don't really um, have too much of an academic affiliation. So um, you can say that we are a true private group practice. Okay. Excellent. And what do you spend most of your time doing? What types of procedures and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I still, you know, do a lot of orthopedic, a lot of dental alveolar surgery, but I also have a pretty sizable amount of my practice in either orthopedic surgery or trauma surgery. Very small amounts of TMJ stuff. I probably do like two to three TMJ, like open procedures a year. Yeah, that's, I would say probably maybe 50% of my practice is dental alveolar and the remaining I don't know, 40% is either orthopedic or trauma surgery. And then the other 10% is this, you know, kind of minor TMJ stuff. And that's basically my practice. That's awesome. So you're doing a lot more orthognathics than most because I think that's a pretty big percent. How have you maintained that? I don't want to like make it seem like I created anything. I basically joined a group that was primarily known for orthopedic surgery. Okay. In Southern California, there's essentially I mean, two main groups that do a lot of orthopedic surgery, one of them being our group, and then the other one being more of a managed care model, you know, with the Kaiser Hospital Group. So, when I joined the practice, there were two guys that were only doing orthopedic surgery. So, there's four full-time surgeons in my practice, one part-time. So, out of the full-time surgeons, two out of the four actually limit their practice to only orthopedic surgery. They don't even you know, do any dental alveolar surgery at all. So it helped, honestly, that I joined a practice that was already doing a ton of it. If you ask me how I was able to kind of keep up my skills or whatever, it was because I basically joined a group that was already doing a ton. 
Okay. I assume that was on purpose. You, did you enjoy orthognathics? Just wanted to continue doing it or why that choice? I enjoyed kind of bone surgery a lot. So whether it was doing trauma or orthognathics, it was just something that I particularly enjoyed doing. And it was kind of a inside connection for me because as you know, Grant at UCLA, they pair you with an oral surgeon to kind of shadow and follow around. And my guy was Rob Relly, who was at Kaiser for 25 plus years. And he's one of the guys who do basically only orthognathic surgery. And so, you know, when I joined his group, it was kind of like a full circle that um, I made and it wasn't necessarily planned, but it just happened that the timing worked out. Nice. And how has your group been able to persist in doing orthognathic surgery despite so many of the challenges that kind of are becoming more challenging each year, especially with finances, people paying, education, things like that? A lot of it, what I would say is the willingness to kind of maybe sacrifice financial reward in the beginning. By that, I mean a big reason why we can make orthognathic surgery profitable and two out of the four partners are able to do that exclusively is that probably for the first thousand they did, you know, it was not incredibly financially rewarding. But because they have done that now, and actually, I think Rob Relly is at 4,000 plus uh, for his career, you know, he's kind of a known commodity in the orthognathic kind of market uh, globally. And so in the beginning, if you're looking at a pure like dollar for dollar, you know, apples to apples comparison between taking out a wisdom tooth versus doing a by jaw surgery, um, naturally the dental alveolar surgery is always going to come out on top. But the initial sweat into learning and creating a reputation for yourself, I think is what basically they did. And it's now, you know, they were reaping the rewards. So I hate to not have a fancy answer for you, but essentially it's really kind of putting in the work in the beginning that really kind of pays off now. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You're able to join those guys who bring so much experience to the the group. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure you learned a ton in residency, but then I'm guessing your learning is, is continuing to progress in this group from, from these other guys or, or how have you evolved since graduating? I think one of the things that I, when I look back and I'm still very young in my career, obviously, but when I think back on kind of what my thought process was, the end of my, you know, residency and kind of transitioning into private practice, I went to a program that did a lot of orthognathic surgery. I, I wouldn't say we did the most in the country, but you know, we did a lot. Parkland has kind of always been known for doing a lot of orthognathic surgery historically because of kind of where all the research was done. And you leave kind of residency thinking, man, I think I really know a lot about it. And then you kind of join a group that the surgeons basically do thousands of them or have done thousands of them. It was, it was honestly very humbling, but also inspiring. And it was a lot of great learning I basically did. They basically operate on a level that you don't really see that much in academia. I know people don't believe me when I say this because they think, oh, he's full of crap. There's no way this could be true. But I would say 50% of our patients never even have V3 hypoesthesia after a sagittal split. Actually, in my second year of practice, I, I cut one of the nerves. And, you know, I'm not saying that proudly, you know, it was a, I felt horrible about it. And 
you know, they hadn't cut a nerve and they were very, you know, understanding of me and saying, it's okay, Jay, but you know, they hadn't cut a nerve in like six years. And they really, you know, are experts kind of at their craft that they've honed it down to such a, you know, almost like a, an art that for me, it was humbling, but at the same time, you know, I can't tell you how much I've learned just being a part of this practice. I, I find it very fortunate for me that I was able to kind of be in this position and really just kind of continue to learn. And I'm, and I'm still learning every day. Wow. That's awesome. What is your guys' setup when you're doing orthognathic surgery? Are you doing it in a hospital? Are you doing it with two surgeons? How does it all go down? We do, you know, probably 50% of our cases at the hospital. Okay. We um, have privileged at two hospitals here, Cedars-Sinai and also Northridge Hospital, which is a little bit further away, but it can be a little bit more convenient for our patients who are coming from a little bit further up north. And we do the other 50% of our patients in our JCO accredited surgery center. And so um, that's probably what makes it a little bit different than some groups out there. We do, you know, by jaws, we do MMA surgeries for sleep apnea in our surgery center, which historically in the past has been you know, somewhat risky, I guess. But, you know, we have a really good team of anesthesiologists and support staff that allow us to do it. We always have two of us in every orthognathic case. And I think that's always been a huge bonus for us because it always just, I think, helps to have a second pair of eyes. Sometimes, you know, not every single sagittal split goes the way you want. And sometimes, uh, you know, split is not going the way you want it to. And so just having somebody else there as almost a safety valve, just another extra set of eyes tends to help uh, quite a bit. And then probably one other question that some people have that I think gets asked a lot is, you know, where do our patients go after doing a surgery in our surgery center? And there's a number of aftercare facilities in this area, and we choose one of them, but there's many. And it's, it's mostly used by plastic surgeons who like to have their rhinoplasty or facelift patients, you know, get some extra TLC. Um, it's basically a fancy hotel room that has the ability for there to be nurses and for them to get IV medications. And so we just use kind of one of those facilities. Nice. I'm guessing if you are doing it in your own type of surgery center, you're able to cut the cost down or, or what are the benefits there? Yes and no. We think that makes sense that the insurance companies would be able to have it for a much more cost-effective price than doing it at the hospitals. But oddly, we still run into the same problem where the insurance will cover a hospital surgery, but they won't cover a surgery center um, surgery. And so even though what you're saying makes sense to us, that we feel like it's way more cost effective to do cases in a surgery center for the insurance payout, still the insurances won't cover the surgery center a lot. And so sometimes that really the two things that kind of decide where the patient gets the surgery done is either, of course, if they're not safe enough medically to be done in a surgery center, like a morbidly obese patient versus, you know, a healthy ASA1 skinny kid. So that's probably the one of the factors. And the other factor is just you know, where will the insurance actually cover the surgery? Yeah, that's helpful to know. I mean, for those guys who are doing orthognathic surgeries or plan on doing it after graduating, you know, what are some of the pearls, two or three pearls you've learned in the last few years working with this group? that you could share with people like that? I mean, it certainly helps, I would say, number one, to have a mentor, to 
to basically join a group that already does it. Or even if you don't and you're in solo practice or whatever, you could kind of split the fee or pay um, somebody in your community that would be willing to come help you and who's done a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know this grant and most young surgeons know this, but like even simple procedures you do at your local hospital, like 99% of the time, the circulating nurse, these scrub techs have literally no idea what an orthopedic surgery is. They think you're there to like take teeth out. Right. They don't know anything about the armamentarium. You know, they don't know anything. They literally feel like it's going to be like a 10 minute procedure. And so if you kind of go into your first buy job by yourself at a residency with a team that knows absolutely nothing about the surgery, it's just a very huge uphill battle. So I would say if you can get somebody to just come help you in the case, whether they're in your group or not, that's pearl number one. That alone will go a long ways. The second pearl I would have is probably what all of us have heard a lot before, but it's patient selection. I actually do more trauma than I do orthopedics, but trauma surgery is pretty forgiving. You know, somebody comes in with bilateral mandible fractures and let's say their post-op occlusion is not 100% perfect and you tell them, hey, look, you know, you might have to get some Invisalign afterwards. They're like, no problem. I've, I've always been meaning to do that or something like that, you know? You know, you make an incision on the neck to do a transfacial approach to a mandible fracture. They don't care at all. They're already in bad shape. But with orthopedic surgeries, because it's purely elective, it's, it's pretty unforgiving. You know, we practice in a really unforgiving part of the country in the west side of LA. And so we see a lot of these patients that are very, very demanding. And so I would say for the young surgeons out there, the first case that you do, maybe, you know, the ideal thing would not be a class one, you know, attractive face that has a slight yaw asymmetry or maybe a class one patient who has a three millimeter midline discrepancy, that those are not easy cases because those are people who come into you saying, I have a three millimeter midline discrepancy or my face is slightly asymmetric. They're going to be hard to do. Whereas somebody who comes in with a huge class three anterior open bite, you're always going to be a winner. Even if it relapses later, a year down the road, for the for the first year, they're going to love you and they're going to give you a great review and they're going to give you a hug and... So pearl number two, I would say, is patient selection. I think for us, pearl number three has been something that most young surgeons are already doing, actually, is basically virtual surgical planning. I think that's really changed orthopedic surgery. I mean, it certainly has for reconstructive surgery in our specialty, but um, we just get so much more information with orthopedic surgery. And that is something that I think most people are already doing. And if they're not doing that in residency, it's really good to take a course or something like that, that would, you know, help you learn how to use it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, those are great pearls. Really appreciate you sharing that. I think a lot of those resonate with me and I'm sure will with our listeners. I mean, that first one you were saying, even just, I had an experience where I kind of bought the practice that was out of state and I would travel there once or twice a month and just doing even dental alveolar stuff there because it was just me going with a whole new team there it was just so so incredibly frustrating and it's just mentally hard for you to focus on the surgery when there's you know you're surrounded by all these glitches and things that aren't you know you're not used to and new people and so that can totally throw off your game if you're trying to especially do an orthognathic surgery with a whole new team that doesn't know what the heck's going on exactly it's funny because I think all of us, when we finish residency, like doing a simple angle fracture is like, oh, 
30 minute case. It's so fast, so easy. And then you go to practice and you're starting your first angle fracture at 6 p.m. with kind of the night crew. And uh, your anesthesiologist asks you like, oh, do you have to do a nasal intubation? Can't you just do oral? And your scrub tech immediately tells you, Doc, Dr. Stuckey, I'm sorry. I've never done one of these before. Y you just know. I mean, who's going to hold the occlusion? You know, while you're wiring the patient in and you're trying to get the plate and the fixation on, it's, it is unbelievably frustrating. And you really kind of learn a new set of skills on how to operate by yourself, essentially. Totally. I think a lot of us, me included, are in residency. We do orthognathic surgeries. And that's probably, for me at least, was probably the most exciting surgery that we did. You know, it was awesome. I gave a talk at the Roe Anus meeting, might be two years ago now. And I think one of like the main messages I wanted to give to people was that I think orthognathic surgery is kind of becoming a lost art, probably due to insurance payout and maybe, you know, lack of exposure and residencies. I don't know what it is, but I think it's kind of sad because yeah. I tell people like, if you really think about it, there's two things in our specialty that we do that's like solely ours. And I think orthognathic surgery is one of them and joint surgery is the other thing. You know, wisdom teeth, you know, I mean, I literally practice in an area where we have endodontists taking out wisdom teeth. I'm not even talking about general dentists. You know, we have endodontists who put on implants. Uh, they do explosion bonds. We have prosthodontists who do wisdom teeth extraction. So, you know, we're all fighting over each other for dental alveolar surgery and trauma. You know, it's split between ENT and PRS in a lot of places. And, you know, recon, obviously, that is also kind of shared with other specialties. And so, but it's very rare. I mean, there's no plastic surgeon besides the random like craniofacial person who will even go into orthognathic surgery and, and joints. I mean, definitely nobody will touch that except for OMS. And so when I gave that talk, the, the one thing I was trying to tell people was that this is ours. You know, I mean, really, there's no periodontist who can say I could do a, a sagittal split. You know, we're a really small group. Um, there's only, I think, 10,000 of us probably in the country. And it is, like you said, a unbelievably rewarding surgery to do at times. There's plenty of business to be had. And so if we don't chase the almighty dollar in the beginning, there's tons of patients who would not only be willing to get surgery by you, but it would also help you develop your skills. Like I'm still developing my skills. And so that, you know, on the tail end of it, you will reap the financial reward too. Yep. I love that. Wise words of wisdom. I think that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that quite so concisely as that, that it is something that's unique to our specialty. Mentally stimulating, so challenging in so many ways. It helps you harness your skills in, in a number of different ways. And it's such a huge impact on the patient's life. So, you know, there's a power for good to, to really change someone's life for the better. Yeah, absolutely. All right, real quick, if you don't mind, we have four rapid fire questions for you to end the podcast. Sure. The first one is, what is the best book you've read in the last year? I just finished The Promised Land by President Obama. It was 700 pages. Not necessarily that I agree with everything, but it was it was a good read just to kind of know what was going on in his head. Awesome. Very cool. Next one is, what has been the most helpful non-oral surgery thing that you've done that helps you with your oral surgery skills? So, something outside of oral surgery. Just maintaining good health as in being physically fit. I'm not like a 
athlete or anything like that. Grant, you look like you're in much better shape than me, but you know, I try to exercise like three times <laughs> a week minimum. As we all age, we get out probably in our thirties and it's a physical job that we have. You know, even if all you're doing is wisdom teeth extractions, you know, when you get out of residency and you're doing, you know, eight to ten sets of wisdom teeth on a Friday, you come home at the end of the day, you're not like, oh, I can go like, you know, play five on five basketball right now. Like you're like, ooh, I'm tired. Oh yeah. And so just having good whether you're doing yoga or you're going on a hike or you're doing weightlifting or whatever, I think maintaining your physical health is probably the biggest thing that I've realized when I got out of residency. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Next question is what forcep do you use to remove tooth number five? Universal forcep. That's all I do. <laughs> the upper universal 150? Exactly. Awesome, man. You don't use the ash, right? <laughs> I do not. Okay. Um, I've been asking that and like half the people say the ash and the other half say the, the upper universal. I'm probably just too lazy to ask for the ash. The universal is <laughs> just sitting right there. So, I just grab it. Exactly. And then the last question is, what is your favorite quote? I don't have one for you right now, Grant. I Because uh, <laughs> I'll probably say something that's not really a quote and I just put it up. I just like, made it up in my own head. <laughs> now I'll sound like a big asshole because I'm quoting myself. <laughs> that would be hilarious. No, I make up my own quotes all the time. I think a lot of mine are fusions of other quotes. I'm a big movie watcher, so a lot of mine come from movies and stuff like that. But no, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I think this is helpful information for a lot of guys. Any other words of wisdom that you have? Anybody who makes it to OMS, you know, is a driven dude. I mean, they're somebody who's, you know, at the top of their class and they're willing to do whatever. Everybody kind of finds their own path. This is just kind of my path. You know, it's interesting and you don't have to put this part in Grant, but one thing I always found was interesting about our positions. I'm just about to turn 36. And it's funny that when you, not you, but when we all leave like residencies, you know, there's a lot of like things that you don't realize that have nothing to do with work, right? Like for once, you have a choice as to like where you get to live, right? There's no match. You have a family who has been waiting a long time for you to say, hey, I'm going to bring in some money now, you know? They're kind of tired of you being a student. My wife is just pregnant with her first kid. And some people just had a kid in residency or they want to start family planning. And so at some point, you know, you're thinking about that. And then some people are 30, 35. Some people even graduate or finish residency at 40. And you're like, man, I, I want to be a homeowner. And there's a lot of pressures and maybe not pressure is not the right word, but there's a lot of things that you have to factor in besides scope of practice, you know? And I think like itinerant oral surgery, like a lot of people like to, and I never did it, but a lot of people like to like get under a high horse and talk about how oh, and, you know, they sold out, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, some people graduate. I mean, luckily I didn't have this much, but some people graduate with almost a million dollars of student debt now. And, you know, you go to a private college and dental school and medical school, it's not everything is about, I want to do a by jaw. There's a lot of stuff that's facing you in life. And so it, it's not such an easy answer. I don't know. I, I've kind of thought about that. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts? I think it's very, very difficult to know what the, the best path is for you. And it's exactly what you're saying. There's so many factors that are pulling you in different directions and so many things you have to, to weigh in the balance. 
but it's just like like you're describing like you know your wife is sick and tired of living in a piece of crap apartment and you got to start making money and you know you, you got to take into account what's best where's the best place to raise your kids and and so you know i think it is very important to to take all that into account but also too i think kind of like some of the things you're alluding to is it's just so important to put yourself in the pathway in your career where you really feel like you're making a difference and you're inspiring people and you're helping because no amount of money is going to change that. If if you're in a situation that you feel like you're just working solely for the dollars and you're not really happy with what it is that you're doing. And I've had to make some career changes because of that. Yeah. Once I start doing things that I'm passionate about and I feel like I'm making a difference it's almost like the dollars follow that and you're just so much happier each day to go to work, you know? Right. One of my uh, partners likes to tell me that like, his, one of his sayings is that like, your goal in life shouldn't be happiness. You shouldn't try to be getting happiness from your job because actually money can buy happiness. What you're looking for is actually meaning. And you want what you do every day to be meaningful to you. And, you know, it's almost sounds contrary to what I just said, but we are in a specialty that we're so fortunate to have the ability. I mean, the money is pretty easy to come by. When people get stuck with comparing themselves to other people, I think that's kind of where they get themselves into trouble. But you know, in, in oral and maxillofacial facial surgery, there's, you will be more than comfortable compared to a lot of people out there. And so, yeah, it sounds like I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate and saying the opposite of what I just said. But no, I do agree with you. I mean, it's every single day when you have meaning in your job, that's something that money can't buy. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, thank you so much for the time. I'd love to keep in touch with you. Hope you have a good rest of the day. And if you learn anything new, reach out. We can do another podcast. Will do, man. Thanks for inviting me to this. And next time I have a post-op complication and are traveling to Denver, I know who to call. <laughs> right. I'm here for you. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Grant. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.